0: Monday, the 10th of May. I I don't know what day it is. Last week we had like a day for everything. This week, you know, we just have the 10th of May. So there you go. Um, I have four quick encouragements as we lead off this week. First of all, there is going to be a national senior send-off event on May the 16th. Uh, A number of our friends in lots of different... Ministries related to young people are engaged in this. It's called Faith for the Journey. It's a virtual senior send off where um, Christian students from across the country can celebrate and worship together online, uh, hearing inspiring testimonies from some of their favorite Christian artists and speakers. And you can check it out at nationalseniorsendoff.com if you have a graduating senior, as I do. Um, she's looking forward to doing this on May the 16th. Maybe your senior in high school um, would be interested in doing so as well, nationalseniorsendoff.com. Uh invite you to um, pray each week of the year for a different part of the global Christian family. So this is something that we do in the congregation of which I'm a part. We use the opendoorsusa.org uh, world watch list. And so if you go to opendoorsusa.org, you can click on their world watch list. And um, and they list 50 countries where persecution, like it's the 50 worst places in the world, really, for persecution. And it gives you an opportunity to bring one of those groups of people into focus, our Christian brothers and sisters in a very, very specific part of the world, sometimes right down to a neighborhood um, in another country, and gives you the opportunity to bring them into view in terms of your prayers. And so if you've been you know, just looking for a way to amplify your prayer life and pray for persecuted believers around the world. This is a great resource for that. Again, you go to opendoorsusa.org and click on the world watch list and you can, um, you can engage there. Another um, prayer opportunity is to pray for an unreached people group. And we're not talking here about whole nations. We're talking here about very specific groups of people in very specific places who can be identified as a people group who have not been reached with the gospel. And so I use a resource, um, a prayer resource at imb.org. And um, I-M-B, it just stands for International Mission Board, if you were trying to figure out, you know, what those letters are. But IMB. And you click on Pray, and they actually list prayer requests from all over the world, which is really, really cool. Um, But in there, you also access the list of requests um, for people praying for very, very specific unreached people groups around the world. So some prayer resources today to stimulate our prayer life, maybe um, re-energize your prayer life at this point in the year Um, and an opportunity for our graduating seniors. All right, now my prayer for you today, and maybe you would pray this for me as well. Here is uh, a prayer straight from the Apostle Paul for his fellow Christians in Rome. It comes in chapter 15 at verse 13 of the book of Romans. And where in the word are you today would be the provocative question, of course. So my prayer for you today, and maybe you would pray this for me as well, Romans 15, 13. We've got Dave Buring up next from Lion Share. We're going to talk about what it's like to operate in the opposite spirit. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is back today from lionshare.org. That's where you can find him. Um, Dave, welcome back.
2: Hey, Carmen. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Okay. The last time we talked, we discussed, um, being offended and how we should not pick up offenses. And so, uh, you dig a little bit deeper into that topic, uh, at lionshare.org. Um, and you have, um, a podcast and some resources posted there about operating in the opposite spirit. So I thought that would be a fun topic for us to discuss today.
2: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: All right. So, what does it mean to operate in the opposite spirit?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think people are familiar with that portion of scripture in Proverbs where it says, A soft answer turns away wrath. And I think one of the things that we have to be aware of at times is the spiritual environment around us. Now, again, depending on how we grew up and how we were discipled and how we were trained, that may be a very familiar thought. Uh, kind of familiar thought or never thought about that before. But one of the things as followers of Jesus that we need to be aware of is whether in our relationships, in our work environment, wherever we are, is what is the spiritual environment around us and can I change it? And so if I was to give it some definition, I would say ministering or, or operating in the opposite spirit is a purposeful response with the intent of impacting the spiritual atmosphere around you.
0: Yeah, and I happen to know that it's contagious, right? Like yes. you you and I know that if we're operating in the spirit of Christ, it's contagious and we also know if we're not operating in the spirit of Christ, that's contagious as well. Yes. Um, so, so th- so the answer to can I change it, you know, is yes, not me, right. but Christ operating in and through me by um by the by the very spirit of the living god so i have to enter this conversation believing that's possible
2: yeah and so, that's exactly right
0: yeah and i believe that it's possible because jesus not only demonstrates us but instructs us to do it and if he instructs us to do something then he's obviously going to supply everything that's necessary for uh, for doing it so let's talk a little bit about jesus as uh uh you know demonstrating a life that's full of opposites
2: yeah, it is interesting, Carmen, to to look at it. I mean, there's there's some of those things even from his birth. You know, when you think about you know the creator of the universe coming in human flesh, you're going to think of you know the best hospital on the planet. Mm, instead, we get a manger. <laughs> You know, that is maybe freshly stained with the saliva of animals, you know, not exactly uh, the best place to have a new child born, especially if it's the king of kings. You know, we think of uh, his name, which to us might be unique. Jesus, it was a very common name in the in the original language. It was actually Joshua and he may have had another three other Joshuas in his third grade class. You know, Um, he was not born wealthy. He did not own a home. He died the death of a common criminal. And then we see things like Jesus is light versus darkness. He's the way versus wandering. He's truth versus lies. He's life versus death. And so his whole um, person and how he lived is, is that way. And then he also taught us things like if you want to be great in the kingdom, you don't climb the ladder and push others off. You actually become the greatest servant. Or if you... You know how do you deal with those that wound and hurt you? You forgive What about those that persecute you bless so so Jesus, the way he lived his life, the way he related to people, there were opposites there, and we can see that that's something that we need to function in
0: okay that and, and I would say on one level it 's really hard, um but only if i'm mm-hmm. trying to do it mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I think there's there is a conversation that um that is required before i could say okay so how do i how do i operate in the opposite mm-hmm. spirit i do have mm-hmm. to acknowledge that it requires the spirit of the living god like i i literally cannot do this it's impossible for me but it's absolutely possible and god's desire for me and so yeah. can you just talk talk about that that level of um, maybe submission to the active work of the Holy Spirit as a part of this.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really good, and you—you you nailed it. Uh, there's just no way in our own because the, you know, the the tendency for us is words for words, hurt for hurt, anger for anger, revenge for the wrong committed, and that's our natural tendency because it's it's the flesh. That's kind of the word the Bible used for it is the flesh, and we've got to. Be able to be in a situation in our own journey where we're recognizing uh, i like what jesus says in john fifteen five. apart from me you can do nothing it's not like some things half the stuff it's nothing and it's part of that place that we have to recognize when we enter into a environment or a relationship a setting where there is going to be conflict Where there's going to be things maybe shade thrown your way that if you can go into it recognizing, okay, Jesus, I can't do this by myself. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And it allows you to not only stay free inside, but actually change the environment and often the person you're interacting with.
0: I am talking with Dave buring from Lion Share. you can find what we're discussing today at lionshare.org we're talking about operating in the opposite spirit when we come back we're gonna um, we're gonna look at you know this requirement to think as a disciple of Jesus with a kingdom viewpoint so um, we'll be we got to take a very brief break but when we when we come back that's what we're talking about thinking as a disciple of Jesus with a kingdom viewpoint that's up next here on mornings with Carmen Dave During serves on the staff at Grace Chapel, which you can find at gracechapel.net. He also heads up LionShare, Share, which you can find at lionshare.org. We're talking with him today about operating in the opposite spirit. So, um, Dave, one of the things that uh, I like to say is it's time to think about what we're thinking about as we're Mm -hmm. trying to cultivate the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. Um, I also think that we're trying to cultivate the mind of Christ on the spirit of the age in which we live, and that Mm -hmm. is really this kingdom viewpoint conversation that you're leading us into. So how do I think as a disciple of Jesus with a kingdom viewpoint?
2: Yeah, I think, again, because of the topic today, one of the things that's important for us to recognize is 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And a a spiritual stronghold is like, the way I like to say it, Carmen, it's a, it's a spiritual stuck place in our life. It could be anything. It could be rejection. It could be fear. It could be all kinds of things. But when we walk into relationships and say, even going to our job today, as people are listening and they're on their way to their jobs, it's putting on the mind of Christ realizing, okay, when that person, my workmate, who tends to undermine you, like instead of responding in kind Respond to them in the opposite spirit. So in other words, when they tend to undermine you, you're going out of your way to bless them. It's like you're being purposeful. That's what I mean. It's purposeful. It's intentional. When a family member who tends to put you down, you're with them. And there it goes again. There's another shot across the bow. You look for ways to affirm them. It's opposite. It's it's and, and it's an amazing thing. When it says in the Scriptures there in Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, it actually works. The neighbor that is a bit inward and snarky with you, go out of your way to be kind and generous to them. And it allows the Spirit of God through your life to change not only the environment, but the person.
0: I know that people are listening right now and they're like, oh. I know exactly who he's talking about and I know what I do when uh, like that person knows how to push my buttons. And I've already failed so many times in this direction, in that relationship, in this way. Um, It really does require me praying in advance, asking God to prepare me for that moment. I actually know. I mean, I do in my own life. I know the people who already know like how to push my buttons on particular, uh, you know, topics or issues. And I know the spiritual atmosphere that's going to exist when I walk into that, that time or that space with them. And I need to get myself ready in advance.
2: Yeah, that's right. And it's, that's where, as you were talking about, it's getting our minds ready for action. And so, so let me just, just encourage people like what can happen when you set your heart this way? Uh, it, it begins to, to make an impact in your own life. And after you do this and you become aware of it uh, just three, four times practicing this, you know, so maybe in your quiet time in the morning, it's jotting this down, operating the opposite spirit. And just so you get that front and center of the sticky note as you're brushing your teeth, you know. Get it on your radar, because as you begin to practice this, guess what? Just like with everything else, a new muscle, a spiritual muscle begins to be developed. And here's here's quickly some things that happen in this. When you respond this way, first, you are expressing the heart of Jesus in the situation. He desires for good to triumph over evil. He desires for people to walk in freedom. You're also allowing the Holy Spirit to move through your life. In other words, instead of responding to the flesh, again, anger for anger, words for words, hurt for hurt, the Holy Spirit's moving through your life, and you're learning to follow his lead in the midst of a tense moment. You're also advancing God's kingdom. You're exercising faith in obedience to his word, and you unleash heaven into that situation. And the last thing I want to say on that is this. You end up neutralizing the enemy of your soul. And transforming the spiritual atmosphere. So instead of taking the enemy's bait, you hit him with a surprise attack, and and it's a wonderful opportunity to partner with Jesus to destroy the works of the devil.
0: I find that um, squinting your eyes at that point helps. Hmm. Like bring him, bring him into view. Like I hmm. know, I actually consciously know what I'm doing right now, and I am, I'm advancing the kingdom of God. I'm letting God use hmm. me to neutralize the enemy in this moment and transform the spiritual environment. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just give him a little squint at that point. That might yeah, be spiritually right. arrogant, but I kind of need it in my own life to like feel it. Like I, you know, that that's my that's my feel it level, Dave, when I'm like, yeah. right, I know what I I know what I'm doing and I know what God's yeah. doing. And isn't isn't it cool to uh, to experience God's work in that way? All it right. Is. You talk about being spiritually aware of our current situation, and I think this is a good walk-off for this conversation. So, talk with us about some of these opposites.
2: Yeah. So, just just think about um, things that are opposite of areas that areas or attitudes or actions that that you know are just not godly. For example, greed. When you run into a situation with someone who's just full of greed, and they're they're you know maybe just hanging on to everything, be generous. Like think, okay, what's the opposite? Well, be generous. Yeah, but Dave, they already have everything. Yeah, but it's the generosity of spirit that can change it. When you're dealing with someone with pride, like if they're very arrogant, and have that pr- proud attitude, walk in humility towards them. It, it might even mean that, you know, when they would never admit they do anything wrong, you just say simply, hey, you know what? I screwed up on this and that. and And it causes humility to begin to break down pride. Fear. A lot of us can walk in fear. So the opposite of fear is love. You're rising up to get your eyes off yourself in your situation to give to somebody else. Discouragement. When you walk into a situation of discouragement, bring hope. Don't let that blanket of discouragement get all over you. Bring hope. What about anger? We, We all encounter that. Bring joy and bring peace into that situation. So just start thinking about those things that you encounter and then think of what is the opposite of that and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you into that.
0: I love that. So we were talking yesterday in Sunday School um, about this passage, just a couple of verses from 1 Peter, beginning at uh, chapter 1, verse 13. And I thought of, uh, about our conversation today um, in that context because I was preparing to talk with you. And so maybe I'll just offer these up as, um, as final verses of encouragement to our listeners today. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And I think this is about operating in the opposite spirit. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, which is literally like girding up the loins of your minds, like mm-hmm. get ready, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former uh, ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, Dave, thank you so much for um, these encouragements, these reminders, these lessons. Folks can get more of this at lionshare.org. And, um, Dave, I am with you today operating in the opposite spirit. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Carmen.
0: What a joy. All right, that's Dave Buring. You can find him at lionshare.org. We'll be right back. All right, Christianity is the faith. Christians are the believers in the faith. So, what would we call the collective culture and the institutions that are created by? Christians operating together. Well, we would call it Christendom. And the question that is increasingly facing us today in the United States of America is whether or not American Christendom, that collective culture and those institutions, whether or not American Christendom is actually incompatible with American Christianity. Yep, that's the topic I'm going to take up next with David French.
2: Kids need boundaries. No matter how hard they try to tell you they don't need rules, it isn't true. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. A lack of limits has a tendency to produce a child that's selfish, demanding, and aggressively controlling. Here's an analogy. A glass of milk is a good thing, but take away the limits of the glass, and all you get is spilled milk. And that good stuff is wasted. Take a look at the limits around your teen. Are they sturdy? Are they fair? If the rules are too confining, your teen will push right through them. If they're too weak, you're training your child to be selfish and demanding. Is there any spilled milk around your home? It's time to pour a fresh glass. When all else fails, moms and dads turn to Mark Gregston for help. Equip yourself with the wisdom you need to succeed at ParentingTodaysteens.org.
0: go deep this morning with David French. You can find what we're discussing at French Press. It's at thedispatch.com. David, welcome back.
1: Oh, well, thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, because you and I are going to talk about Christendom and Kierkegaard and it's early on a Monday <laughs> morning and people might be thinking to themselves, I'm glazing over, but I don't want them to glaze over. So, I read them this sentence. It's actually a part of a sentence um, from your piece, How American Christendom um, or this question of you know how American Christendom weakens American Christianity. Uh, I read this uh, in, in the lead up to our conversation. Christianity is the faith. Christians are believers in the faith, and Christendom is the collective culture and institutions of the faith. So that was my setup for our conversation. And so um, maybe you just walk us forward from there and talk a little bit about. Christendom so we can begin asking and applying the questions to our own culture?
1: Yeah. So the root of this is I read a a book when I was in college. It's it's actually a collection of essays by Kierkegaard called An Attack on Christendom. Really interesting book when I read it years and years ago, but then I reread it recently and it really made an impression on me. And basically what he was saying was that Christendom these institutions of the faith like in his in his day it was like the established church the Danish church that was deeply entangled with the state had had become something so malignant on its own that it was actually attacking the faith itself and it made me think a lot about what was happening in the United States of America where we don't have a state church but we have very powerful institutions of the church think about Big universities like Liberty, or big apologetics ministries like the Ravi Zacharias Ministries, or or you have huge summer camps like Canica camps that we've written about, and these really big institutions have time and time again just been hit and riddled with these terrible scandals, and that in ways and have ended up behaving in ways. That, you know, when you've looked back at history and you've seen like sort of how the state established church lost its credibility over in Europe because it was so deeply, it had become so deeply secularized in the way that they approached life and the way that they existed, that it really undermined the faith. And I and as, as you know, we were going through these just scandal after scandal, rocking these major American institutions, Christian institutions. I just started to get echoes of that time and echoes of that book. And so that's what I wrote about.
0: People resist this. Uh, I know you know that, but I would say yeah. the the most resistant conversations that I have are, are on this very topic because people who um, really do want institutional Christianity and frankly think they would prefer a state church, like they really right. imagine that— that America was at some point Christian and that right. a Christian America is what we want. And I try to have a conversation about healthy pluralism and you can imagine how that goes for me.
1: <laughs> oh, I know how that goes for you. And, you know, one of the, one of the points that he made and this, and this I think is super key is that, you know, when, when he was looking at what is Christianity, he was looking at the person of Jesus and he was saying that a Christian is the person who is the imitator of Christ that is the focus. It's the imitation of Christ. And his contention, which I remember reading back in the day and thinking, man, this seems pessimistic. <laughs> this seems pessimistic. Mm-hmm. But his contention was that the more you focus on the imitation of Christ, then the less appeal Christianity starts to have. But the more you focus on uh, even things like that are important, like doctrine or intellectual ideas, and less on the demands that the imitation of Christ puts on a person. The more you focus on sort of the ideas that a person should have or the thoughts in a person's head, it will grow more popular because the demands are less. And then the more you then focus on, say, the power of the church or the wealth of the church or the ability of the church to control society, it will get more popular still but then he says, as it gets more popular and 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 uh, shrinks away from this imitation of Christ, and this is what was most challenging of all. He said, what really what you end go move towards is the abolition of Christianity and the, its transformation into just another sort of set of ideas or just another ideology. But what's the heart of the faith is the imitation of Christ, and a lot of people can like an idea they can even like doctrine but they're not necessarily going to like the cross and that you know that admonition from Jesus to take up your cross that in the final analysis is what people shrink back from and i remember being so challenged by that when i read it and i kind of first dismissed it you know man that's really pessimistic you know that's a dark view of human nature and the, you know, then the more I've lived and the more I've seen many of these powerful, powerful institutions shrink back from the way of the cross. And, and these abuse scandals are some of the most telling. And it's, it's not just the abuse. It's not just the fact that bad things happen in the institution. It's the way that they react to them by saying essentially the fundamental value is, well, even though this terrible thing happened, we have to live. We have to live. Or, you know, the, the admonition – for the the Christian is that we are we are buried with Christ. You know, we, it is not I who lives any longer, but Christ who lives in me. But these institutions say, no matter what happens, we have to live. And what that often means is they will then go ahead and revictimize victims um, through secrecy, through uh, through contentious contentious court proceedings and court battles, because they have to live. And that's the that is in many ways the opposite of the message of the cross.
0: I think there's a lot of confusion um of the church small c with the church big c. I think there's a mm. lot of confusion um uh, and you this is what you're really elevating here. There's a lot of confusion about you know doctrines and ideas which are important and and routines or actions you know outward and visible signs which are important and traditions or ceremonies and worship wars which, you know, are important and power and politics and missions and, you know, the ability to collectively do really great things together for Christ versus this um, not just humble but often humiliating imitation of Christ in the world. Uh, You know, a a person whose life is aligned with the suffering Christ, with the Christ who's genuinely countercultural, with the self-sacrificing Christ. I mean, that's – that is – you know, frankly, David, that's not what um, most Americans want.
1: Right. You know, they you know, people when they think of and this is something that I've really began to to think through and change my mind about. I used to think about w- this rejection of the world of Christianity. I used to think it was about a lot about our piety. In other words, you know, the the kind of countercultural um, traditional sexual morality or it was the uh, countercultural um sort of personal holiness of Christianity, and those things are certainly countercultural, but they are not nearly as countercultural as the cross, (laughs) as the idea Mm -hmm. that to save your life, you must lose your life. I mean, whoever will come after me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And and let's make this like concrete. So for example, um, my wife and I have covered this awful abuse scandal at a major Christian camp, just a terrible one of the worst super predators we've ever seen operate in a Christian institution. And it responded to that with just a barrage of non-disclosure agreements to keep it secret, um, engaged in very aggressive litigation designed to minimize payouts to victims. And I posit this and I say, what if instead of saying that that this camp has to live, it has to keep going because the camp is so great and it's doing such good ministry, what if it said, no, wait a minute. Our life, the life of the camp, is irrelevant compared to truth and justice. That uh, if if transparency and truth means that people will reject us, well, we're still obligated to transparency and truth. And if justice means that we have to provide restitution, even to the point of liquidation of the ministry, well, justice is is still what's required. And while the camp may go away, or the camp may wither away in that circumstance. Can anyone say that would harm Christianity by a demonstration of truth, a demonstration of justice and humility and repentance on that scale? Would that harm the faith? No, it wouldn't harm the faith. The institution, that corporation that exists might go away, but would it harm the faith to show that humility and repentance? But that's unthinkable to people. It's completely unthinkable because— The admonition is, well, you know, just like, uh, say, Disney would feel faced with a scandal or just like, you know, General Motors or Apple Computer or these major corporate Christian institutions. Well, we have a scandal. We got to just get through it. And what ends up happening is the reaction of the church to threats, even when the threats come from people who are innocent, like victims, because the, you know, the victims have demand justice becomes indistinguishable from the actions of the world. And then that's when you see this abolition that Kierkegaard talks about. Well, if the church, these institutions are indistinguishable from the world, how are they distinctly Christian any longer?
0: I uh, I am reminded here of conversations that I had, you know, 10, even 20 years ago now with um leaders of local church communities who were recognizing that in order to be faithful they were going to have to leave the denominations of which they were a part and in many cases right. they lost the, they lost the physical facilities and um and I just remember a conversation with one elder and this sticks in my mind I mean you know, he said better that the bride of Christ go naked in the street than whore herself out in this generation to false gods and I that's pretty <laughs> countercultural and that's pretty uh you know Cross-focused and um, and scandalous, and now that community of believers is thriving and growing. And Mm -hmm. the church, the church, the physical building that they had to leave behind um, is now closed. Like it didn't didn't survive under um, you know in that prior denomination, who was very very centered on institutional power um, and cultural accommodation, and not centered on the cross. And so there are real lessons in many of our communities. Where you know, we bear testimony to what you and I are talking about today. All right, David, you and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, folks, I'm going to lift up another one of David French's piece, pieces at uh, at the French Press at dispatch dot com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with David French, you can find what we're discussing today at the French Press, which is at thedispatch.com. Um, David, I'd like to jump to um, this piece about the God gap uh-huh. and uh, democratic politics and dominance. Will a God gap doom dreams of demo- democratic dominance? Um, what What is this all about? That's a pretty yeah. um, clickbaity headline, by the way.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, this is well. You know, you want people to read it without being deceptive, so it is. It's a, it's an accurate headline, but it is a little catchy. Um, yeah, th- this is something that's really fascinating that's occurring on the Democratic side, and and has really exposed itself in the last decade. And it's basically this that. If you're going to talk about the secularization of America, which, you know, most people are familiar with by now that America is becoming a much more secular country with so many more millions of people identifying as nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, not N-U-N-S's, that number, the people who are secularizing disproportionately are white progressives. So if you look at sort of any measure of white progressive uh, religious faith and religious beliefs, that Those numbers have really plunged, so right now, for example, only thirty two percent of white Democrats um, believe in God strongly believe in God a higher power or a spiritual force that's thirty two percent whereas there's seventy two percent of white Republicans strongly believe in God uh, the God is described in the Bible, um, so in other words, so that's thirty two to seventy two believing in God described in the Bible now. That's in, And this is something, a number that's really accelerating. But if you look at black Democrats who are a key foundation of the Democratic Party coalition, they are among the most religious segments in all of American life, um, most likely to believe in the God of the Bible, to more likely to attend church services. So in other words, what's beginning to happen is that the Democratic Party— is now including the most and least religious segments of American life. Now, black Democrats are very closely uh, uh, matched with white evangelicals and the amount of their belief in God and their amount of church attendance, etc. But as a as a religious profile, black Democrats look a lot more like white evangelicals, who of course tend to be more Republican, then they look like white progressives who tend to be more democratic. And so the Democratic Party, and again, this is a a relatively new development, at least the dramatic gap is um, has the most and least religious segments of American life within it, which is a fascinating cultural challenge that is only just now fully emerging. As you know, this that because with religious change, right, comes cultural change, and so one of the things that was really interesting as we saw during the 2020 election that a lot of people didn't expect was that the Republicans made steady gains with not just black Americans but also Hispanic Americans, all non white Americans in reality, uh, from 2016 to 2020. And it, where the Democrats won was they made big, bigger gains in, in white voters uh, than the Republicans made in non-white voters. But at my point in my article was anytime you have a party that is going to have two such radically different cultures within it, that creates its own tensions. It creates its own strains. And that it's one of the reasons why a lot of very smart Democrats are not looking at the 2020 election results and thinking that it heralds the beginning of dominance, but instead see the tensions in the coalition that could break it apart.
0: I thought this uh, paragraph was really insightful. Religion is a key component of culture. And when religious differences are large, cultural differences are sure to follow. Thus, the demographic vulnerability goes far, far beyond mere messaging. There are going to be deep value differences in their coalition. And if present trends continue, those value differences will grow over time. Uh, I'm also a person, David, who, you know, as I as I believe uh, we are witnessing globally a spiritual revival, you know, God really on the move <clears> in China and Iran and other places um, that, you know, God surely will be pouring out his spirit anew. Um, here in this land as well, and so those of us who pray for revival, like that's a part of this conversation as well. And I recognize that you know when we're having a purely political discourse, talking about spiritual revival is sometimes um, not a not a popular conversation to have. But like that's what I'm praying for.
1: Right, right. You know, and the interesting thing is, you know, when you talk about American diversity and American religion, um, and you talk about increasing immigrant populations in America mm-hmm. that come from non-white countries. They're coming from some of the more religious countries in the world, and so you know it's not like you're importing a whole bunch of Norwegians and Swedes who right. who are not all that religious. What's happening is, um, you know, non-white voters, non-white uh, immigrants are often quite religious, and you know, to until recently, or uh, and, and certainly they tend to be more democratic, but that is beginning to shift that is beginning to change and it's very interesting if you sort of dive deep onto the democratic side of the you know the internal debates that political parties have there is a lot of interesting concern that this sort of online segment of the democratic party which is you know heavily concentrated on twitter and places like that it tends to be more white and more progressive than the rest of the party and the fascinating thing is there was really only one candidate in the Democratic primary in 2020 who ran towards the whole party rather than sort of the online party, and that was Joe Biden, and he won in a route. But a lot of the energy on the Democratic side of the aisle seems to be tied to that online activism, which is much wider, much more secular, much more sort of divorced from the larger group of people. And there's no sort of phrase or slogan that more perfectly personifies that huge gap than defund the police. And yeah. that's that's a slogan that was very popular in, in more upscale white progressive sectors of the Democratic Party, but v- wholesale rejected by millions upon millions of the very non-white voters that the white progressives often thought they were advocating on behalf of. And so um, it is very fascinating to see this gap. And if there's one thing that we know, it's a lot of that online culture is not very tolerant of dissent. It's not very tolerant of disagreement. And so they can actually repel and reject their own voters because that that sort of slice of of democratic life is more intolerant. It's more um, radical than the whole rest of the party. And I think there's only one politician saw that in the primary, and that was who really saw that in the primary was Biden. And the question is, A, can he govern like that over time? And B, after Biden, who's the next person who sees mm-hmm. things clearly like that? And that's mm-hmm. a very open question.
0: Um, Okay, this is completely unrelated, but I'm going to need to know from your um, from your colleague, Jonah Goldberg, like, um, does he have an ongoing sitter for Zoe and Pippa? And if not, could I apply for that job?
1: (laughs) He has a pretty regular sitter.
0: I'm telling you that his Twitter feed is my favorite because of the dogs. (laughs) There you go.
1: They're all right. They're great dogs. Not as good as mine.
0: Oh, there you go. Blessings on you. Uh, We look forward to our next conversation. That's David French. You can find him at thedispatch.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. That is it for hour one. We will be back in hour two with our good friend Karen Swallow Pryor and Todd Furness. He is going to give us the 60% 60 solution for the total reform of U.S. health care. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.